Talk of the Hound, a podcast from Theater Hound. Theater Hound is a new, unique theater website launching this year, which looks at the art and business of theater from a multitude of angles. I'm your host, Wes Braver, and I'm here to talk to all kinds of people whose work makes theater so compelling today. For this episode, I have the privilege of speaking to Dan Moses Schreier, a New York-based composer and sound designer. He's worked on a huge number of shows, including many Shakespeare in the Park productions and musicals by Stephen Sondheim. He's currently working on a musical of his own called The Houdini Box that's set to premiere at the La Jolla Playhouse. He's writing it with book author Brian Selznick, who's famous for writing The Invention of Hugo Cabret, which was the basis for Martin Scorsese's Academy Award-winning film Hugo. The Houdini Box, published in 1991, is a shorter book about a young boy, Victor, who learns the secrets of famed magician Harry Houdini. I was curious about this book. Is like a children's book, but he's really opened this genre up in a way that like, oh my gosh, these are such compelling visual stories that they're really open to anyone. And with the Houdini box, how do you feel that that translates musically? Do you feel that this is a specific like theater for young audiences piece or is this like we're really opening it up? Well, if you look at the book, the book is only 40 pages. It's so clearly the shortest of of, uh, Brian's magnum opus. (laughs) And, uh, so we wanted to first to open up the story so that you could make it a full evening. Uh, and also, I mean, we we're sort of using Matilda as the model a little bit that it be that it's really aimed for young adults, but uh, grown-ups are going to find it a compelling story too. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the story is about a young kid named Victor who is obsessed with Houdini. Uh, and uh, and it and it's about his mother trying to raise him, and his father has recently died, and uh, it's definitely about the relationship between parents and their children. And did the commission kind of gear you in that direction? Or had you guys kind of decided to do this, and then the commission came through? I think what happened was uh, Brian has has, uh, an apartment here in New York, and he also has a residence in La Jolla. So I think somehow the artistic staff of La Jolla found out that Brian lived there and they approached him and they approached Brian first and then Brian asked me to join him. Uh, so it, it, the idea did originate from the, uh, the, the development department at the La Jolla Playhouse mm-hmm. and they approached Brian first. Your, your primarily instrumental and incidental music I, and, and opera? I, well, I've actually always been involved. I'm not trying to put you in a, no, in a Houdini box. Peop, in a Houdini box, that's pretty, pretty good, Wes. Uh, no, I actually I wrote two musicals that were presented by Richard Foreman at the Ontological St. Mark's. Uh, and, I mean, they were very much downtown affairs, but they were musicals. And But, uh, you know, we never got the times to come record to review either one of them. So they were very, uh, they were, they're really good projects, but they, we never got a lot of uh, press and exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always been writing songs for a long time. Yeah. Um, it's just people don't really know that side of my career. Huh. Here's a song from Dan's show, Write If You Get Work, a horse opera, with book and lyrics by Jeffrey M. Jones. This is I'm On Hold, sung by David Greenspan. I'm still on hold 
sound designer on tons of different musicals, Sondheim shows, um, American Psycho, you know, run the gamut of really modern to more, you know, traditional musical theater. What have, what have you learned from that sound design experience working for all these other wonderful composers that you're now putting into your work? Well, there's no question that being in the room with um, Mr. Sondheim has has been an amazing experience. So doing all those Sondheim musicals and being around that music so much, because every time I got hired for one of the revivals of Steve's musicals, I was a fan of Steve's, but I wasn't a giant fan of Steve's in the sense that I didn't know every song, I didn't know every lyric, and I didn't really know the shows as well as I know a lot of people did. So for me, getting these jobs to work on, uh, the first one I worked on was the revival of Into the Woods that James Lapine directed that uh, starred Vanessa Williams, and I didn't really know the piece. And so getting to be so immersed in that world and hearing that music day in and day out and hearing the lyrics and hearing the way the lyrics are set, it was an amazing education. So. I think by doing, all, for me, doing all those sound design jobs on those musicals, and not just these musicals, but uh, it was an amazing education. And I firmly believe that my writing got better just being around all that material and getting to work with people like jo- Paul Gemignani, who was the conductor for all those musicals. He taught me a lot about musicianship and the way you, the music flows during the course of a musical, and then getting to work a lot with Jonathan Tunick, the orchestrator, and getting to really witness up close how he puts it together and how it works. It was like the best education anybody could have. So I I firmly believe that my writing got better by doing all these sound design gigs with these people. You, But you don't think of them as, okay, what if the composition was this? That would make my job easier? You don't think of it in those terms? No, but there are times when I've been working on shows where... The problem is not... The issues that come up in sound design for musicals doesn't always often happen with my issues with the composer. It's more usually about um, the way I can, can or cannot collaborate with the music director and the orchestrator. Because hmm. that's where, in terms of doing sound design for musical, that's where I believe... Uh, a lot of the work gets done to make a show sound fantastic. If I can't collaborate with the musical director, and like if I say, you know, I'm being overwhelmed by the band here or something like that, and then I can't do my job. Mm-hmm. And same thing with the orchestrator. I mean, I've worked on some shows where things are just super heavily orchestrated, where it's just sort of constant noodling, and it's like, oh, stop for a second, let the voice come through. So my issues are usually more there than with the composer. Interesting. What would be like a technique specific to sound design where you might hear something and be like, ooh, I hadn't thought of that. Like, ooh, they raised that frequency and that really helped me hear that. Or You have to create a series of delayed systems to make it all work together so that the sound is delivered from the actor to the audience's ear so that there is a 
co cohesive timing so that it, it fun so that you hear just one uh, how to describe it like if you say the word the that you just hear the all happen at the same time and to make that happen <clears throat> you ha the, the further you get away from the stage you have to time the speakers in milliseconds huh. you add time to them so they all work together so that because the, the mezzanine speakers might be you might hear a the the that's exactly right. If right. You, if you put zero time everywhere, you'll hear the 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 the. Uh -huh. That's right. But if you time it, you'll add like you know five milliseconds, ten milliseconds, twenty milliseconds. Though that's not what it will be, but just to, then you'll hear the. Yeah. And then um, my personal thing is that uh, you always have to lead with the actual voice of the actor. Like, that's the most important thing to time to? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And not everybody does that. And I can hear that in a second. I hear when they don't. <laughs> Interesting. But then, aesthetically, there are some shows where you don't want to do that. Like, in American Psycho, I mean, we did it to a certain degree, but I didn't focus on it the same way I do it for a Sondheim show. Because it was so uh, synth-pop, rock-and-roll-oriented, the, the orientation of the, of the music, I wasn't so concerned of its sourcing there. Because the aesthetic is that the music comes out of boxes when you listen to it at home or even right. in the concert hall, or in, in not a concert, in, in, a, in, a, in a rock palace, whatever they're <laughs> called, uh, at Webster Hall, at, sure. uh, uh, at, at Mar uh, Madison Square Garden, um, sourcing it to the person's not as important. So you're connecting that to genre. You want, oh, this is pop, this is rock. We want it to sound like pop and rock, so it has to do that. And you yeah. time the system accordingly. As a matter of fact, yeah. I've said this before, but you, the sound system that you install as a sound designer to a theater is like a musical instrument. So <clears throat> if you're doing a Sondheim musical, you'll want, um, you want to build a beautiful Stradivarius violin to make sure everything uh, you know, just sounds acoustic and beautiful and resonates beautifully. But that has no place in a rock and roll musical like American Psycho. Mm -hmm. So that you build a very different kind of instrument that is more like a trumpet. You know, that's a big, blary, loud thing. Mm -hmm. And and part of it is the aesthetic of how you time the system. You know, yeah. I, I will definitely time a Sondheim musical in a different way that I time American Psycho. Huh. So American Psycho is an interesting musical to talk about because of its use of electronic music which is something that you've been messing with for, you know, longer than it's been. You know, you were working with it before it was the cool thing to do. Um, I have, I guess. <laughs> brush that dirt off your shoulders, it's all right. Well, um, <laughs> nobody cared back when I was doing it. <laughs> but you stuck it out. And it's probably, I'm sure, given you an advantage in terms of learning the new technology. I mean, you've been working with that kind of thing for a while. Um, now, now that it's totally taken over, does it surprise you that it's taken over? Or no, not at all. It's does it surprise you that it hasn't more, that acoustic has held out in some ways? Uh, maybe, maybe yes, in the sense, and I've, uh, I mean, one of the things I've often talked about is that the, the, the history of music, the, the history of music history, the history of music is on a parallel path with the history of the technologies that are created to make music. So, you know, when you're in uh, a church in medieval France, you know, you've got sackbuts that are these weird trumpets. 
But in trombone, I'm not going to believe that either. Sackbutt standing. Sackbutts is a real instrument. And it's very cool. <laughs> the, that uh, that will fill a cathedral. So uh, then, as uh, we got into uh, the you know the beginning of the classical era, you have uh, chamber music. You have chamber symphonies. You've got uh, the Renaissance. Actually, let me go to the Renaissance. You have like these uh, vocal madrigals, and you have these uh, consorts, and um, where uh, you're not filling these larger spaces, you're filling more intimate spaces, smaller chapels, and stuff like that. And then, um, as you get into the Romantic era, the, the rise of the symphony orchestra, and the beginning of the rise of a middle class, and the rise of building concert halls instead of built, you know, royal royal chapels, you know, so the spaces become different, the music becomes different, the requirements of the music become different, so then you start getting these orchestra instruments that, uh, you know, begin to project even more, the moving away from gut strings to steel strings, I mean, everything was sort of geared towards uh, making music a little bit louder uh, until you get the, the large symphonic work of the late... Uh, the late, uh, the beginning of you know, the 19, uh, 1900s, the turn of the century, you know, Mahler, Strauss, uh, you, where you start having orchestras that have like 110, 120 players, Wagner, and then um, and then what eventually happens is like you start getting involved with uh, Les Paul and the invention of the amplified guitar, and then you could like, uh, like the Jimi Hendrix experience where you just get three guys. you got a guitar player, a bass player, and drums. But they're louder than those 120. That's exactly yeah. right. They're louder than those 120. I mean, initially they didn't have the sound systems right, but by the end of Jimi <laughs> Hendrix's career and uh, this whole idea of sound amplification really took off because of rock and roll and you'd be able to fill, you know, uh, arenas and stadiums and stuff like that. So, so... So to get back to your question about musicals, yeah, I'm surprised that it's beginning to shift now even more than ever before where rock and roll and pop music is now dictating the musical vocabulary, which is we're getting away from the acoustic sound and moving more into uh, the, the rock and roll, amplified pop, whatever you want to call it, sound. So uh, that was not the most eloquent way of discussing that, but no, that's but sort we, of what we got a history, about. and that is very interesting... All, all of those different connecting beats because it really does I think that theory is completely valid that it, it follows that path of the technology or the space even if, even if you think of the venue as the technology you know those cathedrals and that's right and the open fifths really resonating in there and everything so with something like a Broadway musical um, I, I assume that all the acoustic instruments and all these pits are amplified though too right uh, now they are they weren't yeah you not know, always not they I would say when I first first started seeing Broadway shows in the early 70s, I'm not sure the pits were amplified. You know, I was still in high school. I would come to New York and see shows. And then <clears throat> from not being amplified, then it was just like a stereo pair in the pit. And then as amplification became more part of what was done in the theater, and I think Joe Papp was instrumental in that, like, he's the one who brought wireless microphones into the theater at the Delcourt Theater. Like, that mm -hmm. may be one of the first theaters that... And because that's outside, of course, you're going to need it even more than you even would more in so. a But then house. eventually migrated indoors. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, more uh, it became a much 
more part where you, you mic'd every instrument, you mic'd every single actor. Uh, that wasn't always the case. Like, it became, first you just mic'd the principals and the chorus wasn't mic mic'd, or you just hung shotgun mics everywhere. Just You area mic'd everything before you, they could even afford or have the technology to put wireless on everybody. And, and I understand it's sort of an arms race of once one Broadway theater is really amplifying you're going to go to another one and be like, I can't hear because my ears are attuned to this. Well, there's no, well even even my in my own career, here's uh, I designed the sound for um, Bill Finn's uh, 25th uh, annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And that show ran for three years. And when I designed the show, I, I decided very consciously, I want when, when they were at the microphone, the spelling bee, it should be a big PA sound. But when they're not, it should be very, very acoustic. And then I was invited to come see the closing night, so I went to the closing night, and when they're not on the microphone doing the spelling bee, the crew did an amazing job of preserving my sound design and being honest to what I did three years ago. But my own ears within the culture had changed so much ago, wow, I, that's barely amplified. Huh. Just in that three years, in the, three the years, things you had seen were louder and getting louder. That's correct. So I even thought that my own sound design had been, oh my God, that's already old school. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. Huh. Um, I don't so, think I would do a show as softly as what I did like that now. I don't think you can do it anymore. Right. Everybody's expecting something different. Do you get people... when Because you do a lot of electronic music, and, and American Psycho was, I understand, two laptops. Mm -hmm. And were there were there other acoustic instruments involved? Well, was it? that's sort of an interesting story in the sense that initially it was uh, two, just two laptops, because that's what it was in England. And, uh, and there's a local that 802 usually says that that's the way a show was done before, you can do it that way on Broadway. But they did come in and see the two laptops, and we were already in previews, or uh, we were pretty far along the process, and they said, oh, no, you've got to add another two players. So they added a drummer and a guitar player. And the irony was, is that all they did was they sort of played the, Ampleton, the Ableton samples live. So yeah. they played the live samples live. And so you, you couldn't actually discern a difference between it, the two laptops version versus the laptop and two musicians versions. But, you know, it, did, it was nice that there were two musicians and other two musicians in the room. But it, did it change the sound of the show? No. <laughs> Interesting. Um... Is this? I mean, the the union obviously wants to protect their interests, and these are you know tons of people's jobs, and that's yes. that's a real thing. It is a real thing. Um, but as artists, do you think you have to uh, accommodate that, or or are you thinking solely? You know, what does this piece need? What is you know is is that a factor in your decision? I'm sure that you'd have to ask Duncan that question. Let's sure, say, yeah. American Psycho, but I, I believe the answer is that he was doing what was appropriate for the piece. Hmm. Um, no, I, actually, you know, musicians, I mean, musicians who are coming out of conservatories today, it's, it's a true dilemma. I mean, I believe that <clears throat> the culture is moving away from that thing that's coming out of a conservatories. And uh, it's a sad thing, but you know, I don't know what to say. It's where music is going. As a matter of fact, somebody uh, is, I've met somebody who's on the board of Juilliard, and so they asked me, well, what do you think we should be teaching all these students? Because mm -hmm. we're churning out all these students, and we're sending them out in the world, and there really aren't that many jobs out there for these people. I said, you should be teaching them laptops. You get them, make them all get computers, 
teach them music software, teach them music notation software, get, I'm sorry, but get them all onto the computer just so that they're, they know that that's what's happening out there. Mm-hmm. And I think that was met sort of with stony silence. Yeah, that's. I was going to ask what what was the response to that from Juilliard? Yeah. Huh. No, but I firmly believe that they should be doing that. That they should be encouraging everybody to get to know what the laptop can do. Totally. Hmm. It's not going away. Yeah. It's not going to be less. Yeah. Huh. Um, for Houdini Box, are you thinking? electronics at all or is it I mean time period it seems more appropriate to go with more acoustic but no what we've what we've been doing with Houdini Box is there are some songs that have a very large sound design component that's built into the composition uh-huh. like there's one song that's this fake seance and and so all the all the effects of the seance turn into a rhythm of the song and they don't go uh-huh. away they become the song yeah so there are a couple of songs like that in, in the show so I'm not thinking about pop music per se because of the nature of uh, Houdini being a subject line of the show, but I am thinking, well, how can I bring my skills as a sound designer into the world uh, of the Houdini box that excite the world of my mm-hmm. role as the composer? And we've been finding ways to do that. Huh. So you, do you, you don't think of them as very different muscles, I assume. Not at all. They're, they're pretty similar. I mean, I, I often, again, I have said this on occasion, but... I mean, in, in many ways, the, the, it's the different sides of the same coin in the sense they're both about organizing noise and time. And one does it in a very technical, specific electronic way, and one does it in a very acoustic, uh, with a long history attached to it kind of way. Mm-hmm. But they really are about, uh, you know, sonics and time. Mm-hmm. They're doing... They really organize things in different ways, but are or I'm doing the same thing. Hmm. So, so something I'm personally curious about um, is when we listen to like '80s music and or or even I guess '90s even. There are certain synthesizers and samples that were like, oh my god, I've heard this thing and it's so it's so done you know like you've heard that 808 that exact right. beat so many times right so that almost feels nostalgic right do you feel like that's going to continue to be this the thing with synthesizers that like we'll look back in in 2030 and be like that's a that's a 2019 sampler right there you know we you can oh. hear that yeah, absolutely absolutely that will happen do you think do you think it'll become like dated in some way because i've heard people talk about like soundtracks from from the 80s or or like when you listen to phantom of the opera and you hear that uh the overture thing and it's just like so aggressively 80s um and like that becomes dated in a way is that a fear that you think about because acoustic doesn't doesn't necessarily happen that way you know Uh, i actually think it does i think that actually uh, am i afraid of it you know maybe a little bit but it's, (laughs) it's the normal course of things i mean in a sense let's say when bach died he, his obituary talked about how he was a great organist, but they didn't talk about his composing because everybody thought his composing was really old school. And it was his son, C.P. Eba, who was the famous one because his style was new and fresh and it didn't involve sort of the intricate contrapuntal thing that was, that was you know, descendant of the Renaissance techniques of, of writing music. 
and uh, and C.P. Bach was free from that. So he was like super famous, much more famous than his father as a composer mm-hmm. in his own time. And I don't, and I see that as being exactly analogous to what you're talking about in the sense. Oh my God, the 808 drum patches, you know. Oh yeah, that's so old school. <laughs> uh, it's no different. Huh. So so these things that timeless music is going to be timeless regardless of what instrumentation. Yeah, I think so. I think something that's well written and has a beautiful thing to it or whatever that is will uh, will survive. It'll transcend its its uh, instrumental. I mean, it, it may be forgotten for a while. Maybe after it's written, maybe you know it'll go out of fashion because I do. Fa- I mean, I believe fashion does. Uh, affect things like classical music too. So mm-hmm. I, you know, things can go out of fashion, but maybe because it is so well constructed and there's really some amazing thought behind it, it does find a new audience in 15 years from now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was Duchamp who said he he thinks that art dies after 50 years, and I think there is some truth to that because we sort of lose the connections of all the things that inspired it. It's time mm-hmm. and place. Well, that's interesting considering that you've worked so much with Shakespeare, who has not died. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> has not died in the past 500 years. Turns out, still alive and well. And you've been doing lots of composition for and sound design at the Delacorte. Um, what are challenges or opportunities in working with uh, with Shakespeare? Well, he's pretty good, that Billy Shakes. He's, <laughs> he's all right. He's all right. Um, I've had, you know, some of my favorite things I've done at the Delacorte uh, because those plays are truly amazing, and there's so much you can do with them musically. Um, I mean, one of my personal favorites was writing the music for The Merchant of Venice without Pacino, with that directed by Dan Sullivan. Uh, and there was... Um, I know you get you to dig your teeth into really great material and great. You're writing music to great texts and and the other like one of the things about Merchant of Venice is that within the text Shakespeare is talking about music all the time. It's one of the themes. I mean, people don't talk about it being one of the themes, but it's one of the things that's always being talked by the characters as a poetic metaphor for their problems or where they are in life. And um, so music is very natural to that play. I mean, what's interesting about that production is that Dan Sullivan, the director, decided to add three pantomimes into the show. Uh, at the very top of the show, he wanted a whole sort of pantomime about the stock exchange working and how the Jews were trying to be a part of it, but were never let into the building or doing their trades from, like, through the gates and stuff like that kind of stuff. That was really fascinating. Here's that opening moment from Merchant of Venice.
and here's Tell Me Where Is Fancy Bread from the same show. Then in the middle of the play after the trial, Dan, one of the outcomes of the trial is that Shylock is told that he has he's, has to uh, he has to convert, and that's usually done off stage. And Dan Solomon decided he wanted to show the conversion on stage, so there was like a three minute pantomime, a three minute piece of music that I had a right to cover this really sort of horrifying scene of watching Shylock, this forced conversion of, of Shylock. Here's that cue from Merchant of Venice.
And then at the end of the play, um, the, the subplot of the two lovers and these lost rings gets solved where the rings are found and everybody's supposed to be, oh, happy the couples get married and everybody's happy. But Dan wanted it to be because the rings were lost because of the two men reneging on their oaths of being faithful to their women decided that the women should never really accept them back. So there's like this sort of discordant walking off where they don't... It's usually done, ha, 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 we're all laughing, it's all worked out, we're all in love, and Dan wanted to do the opposite. So, uh, which I thought was sort of brilliant and great. So mm-hmm. then I had to write a big piece of music for that at the end. So those kind of opportunities uh, are very exciting to me, and I, I, they were a great joy to work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the other thing about... Shakespeare and getting to work at the Delcourt is like another favorite of mine was doing the score for this Troilus and Cressida that Dan did. Now here's a play talk about things going in and out of fashion. I mean people think it's a lousy play or they think it's one of the lesser plays. I think it's one of his great great plays and I also it's Shakespeare at his most bitter. It's Shakespeare being really cynical. It's a very very dark cynical play. You know it takes place Seven years into the uh, uh, the war between uh, the Trojans and uh, and the Greeks over Helen of Troy, and 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 it's sort of a, they're at a stalemate, and it felt and it feels so much like wait, the Iraq War, like we're there and we just can't get out of it, and 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 that's sort of the world that Troilus and Cressida takes place in this sort of society that's been at war for all this time and they don't should we stay in it should we get out of it what are we doing we can't get out of it and and that uh play i really resonated with me and it was a it it, 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 i was very proud of that score also because of the task that dan solon had given me he's he really wanted i mean part of the problem with the play is that as a our culture today we're very removed from the trojans and the greeks and that whole mythology and what happened so we so you watch the play it's very easy to not understand which ones are the trojan which ones are the greeks and that they hate each other so one of dan's instructions is he said i really want to very clear what music is trojan music and which mm-hmm. is greek music and so the my solution because he wanted it, so it was sort of modern it was modern dress wasn't sort of modern dress is that um the trojan music was all this sort of synth patty stuff with uh, always sung with a female vocal leads over it, symbolizing Helen. Mm-hmm. So, like, so that was the Trojan music. So, Helen of Troy, you heard her voice, and you hear these very, very synthy pad stuff. Here's Victoria Houston Ellum singing Dan's song, Love, Love, Nothing But Love. Still more. 
Greek stuff was all based on the music of corn. <laughs> Super aggressive, metal, heavy, as, as heavy as I could write. Uh-huh. And you know, and, and what was great about it is you totally knew where you were. Yeah. I mean, there was no mistaking the two vocabularies. Yeah, yeah. And I think it really helped the audience make the shifts of where they were. Well, that's especially interesting given, I mean, that in, in movies like Jarhead or like other things that are exploring the Iraq War, heavy metal is like what a lot of those soldiers are listening that's to. Right. So so corn is like... That, that was the inspiration. I yeah. knew that these Jarheads, these guys sure. in the trenches, were lift, they would listen to the super heavy metal stuff before they would go into battle and yeah. pump themselves up. Yeah. Huh. So that was against uh, the Enya of Troy. That's right, the Enya of Troy. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, are, do you like focusing on political stuff? I mean, I'm I'm in your studio here, and there's a for the viewers at home. There's an orange, uh, what looks to be maybe a voodoo doll of the current president. There are not pins in it no, that I can see, pins. but those are uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you you can't always see that in my work. They sometimes find me, mm-hmm. but. Uh, no, when you're working on Shakespeare, because of the depth of the writing, it, it, it seems to always have a kind of resonance that you can apply to anything. And that's why modern dress Shakespeare, to me, is, can be truly fascinating, because issues that were going on in 1599 can be, still be relevant to what's going on in 2018, 2019. So uh, uh, no, I do find that stuff really uh, exciting and interesting. I'm curious, because everyone has in their work kind of touchstone moments that you think about, like that was it. That's when I was at my best. Do you have like a proudest moment in either sound design or composition or the combination of the two that you're like, you can point to and be like, that's, I'm proud of that. Well, in terms of sound design, one of the shows that I guess where I felt like it all came together as a sound designer because I got to use so many different muscles was the revival of Into the Woods with Lapine because I got to, uh, you know, exercise my muscles as a, making the vocals crystal clear in the theater. There was uh, my muscles miking the orchestra and working with Jonathan Tunick to make sure that the orchestrations were wonderfully clear. And then there was this wonderful soundscape I got to create. Like, you know, it was, it was maybe one of the first projects that brought the computer into the theater for playback. Hmm. You could use each track and performer related to each compu- each speaker through Sample Cell so that you could actually make things feel like they were moving through the theater or swirling, like the birds, whenever those birds came and they sort of swirled around the theater. It's about when you came into the theater, there was a big soundscape that went on for the entire time that the audience was in there of like an aviary of just birds just flying huh. around the theater. And um, 
So I, I love that project because I got to exercise all sides of my sound design muscles. So that was very, very exciting. Here's that cue from Into the Woods. Here's one last track from Dan that combines his compositional and sound design skills. This is from Disfarmer, a play about Dust Bowl era portrait photographer Mike Disfarmer. We found this, bio this biographical, not biological, but biographical fact that, that Mike Disfarmer uh, played uh, banjo with his pals. So, uh, and he had a fiddler friend. So uh, the score turned out to be for banjo, guitar, uh, violin, and accordion. And, uh, and that's a score that I'm very proud of and I think was very, very successful. But again, the, the whole evening went back and forth between soundscape. It would, it would morph from the instruments into a soundscape because one of the things that Mike Disfarmer was uh, phobic about in real life was tornadoes. Hmm. And it, he made some choices in his life because of his fear of tornadoes. And uh, so that was a large theme in the piece. So uh, the music would start in the band like I do, like the sort of like turnpikey, hoedowny kind of thing, mm -hmm. but then it would it start it would start you know being sort of traditional, and then slowly morph into something very strange, then then got taken over by a sound design, you know, to like sounds of freight trains going around the room because tornadoes people describe tornadoes sounding like freight trains.
fascinating to talk to Dan Moses Schreier as a composer myself, hearing about his thought process and the connection he feels between sound design and composition. We're looking forward to his future productions in both of those disciplines, and of course to his world premiere debut of the musical The Houdini Box at the La Jolla Playhouse. Thank you all for listening to Talk of the Hound, and we'll see you next time.